Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. A bent figure sits in a low-lit room, tucked away in the corner of the hospital. There are a few chairs and a few stained glass windows. A sign hanging over the door says, Prayer Chapel. And there in one of those chairs sits a father. His son is upstairs in surgery, barely clinging to life. It was a car accident that came out of nowhere, and now the young boy's life is hanging in the balance. The father in the prayer chapel wouldn't describe himself as religious. He's never read any sacred texts or gone to a worship gathering or practiced any spiritual disciplines. He has no idea if he's praying to the Jewish God, the Islamic God, the Christian God, Buddhist God, Hindu God. He honestly doesn't even know if he believes in a God. But there he sits in that prayer chapel. He's bent over, he's rocking and whispering, Please, God, please, please, God, let him live. Please, please. Prayer is a human reaction to pain. A woman slides into the back pew of a worship service. She's crippled by the weight of her emotional pain. She found out a week ago that her husband's been having an affair for three years. She wants him to stay and try to work it out, but he says he's done. He says he's going to move in with the other woman. No amount of talking seems to change his mind, and there's nothing she can do. She doesn't know why she's at the church. The last time that she was in a church building, she was 12 years old at a vacation Bible school program. She never really gave God much thought after that. But now, here she is. She's sitting in the back, staring at the cross at the front. She's silent, but her heart is screaming, Help! Help! Please, help! She's desperate. She has nowhere else to turn. Prayer is a human reaction to pain. A young man, he's out fishing on the river. He's hiked for miles to get to his secret fishing hole, hoping to catch the big one. He steps down onto a rotten log that breaks and gives way, and his leg falls into a hole below. It turns funny, and it snaps. A log rolls back pinning him there. He feels a shattering, piercing pain, and he screams out. He looks down, and he can see broken bone sticking out of his leg. The pain is excruciating. The log is keeping him from pulling his leg free. He's trapped. He has no cell service. He didn't tell anyone where he was going, not even his girlfriend. He screams for help, but the forest is silent. 
Nobody is there. He slumps over, going in and out of consciousness. Every time he wakes up, he yells into the forest and cries out another prayer. Please, God, let someone find me. Please let me live. He remembers what his Catholic grandma said about him living with his girlfriend and how he should really marry her. And he starts making promises. Please, please, I promise I'll turn my life around. I'll marry my girlfriend. I'll I'll get confirmed. I'll go to Mass every Sunday. I'll help out at the soup kitchen. I'll stop getting so drunk. Please, please just let me live. Please. Prayer is a human reaction to pain. It's, please God, make it stop. Please make it better. There are as many people praying outside of churches, mosques, synagogues, as praying inside of them. And the kinds of prayers they're praying are, help, help, please, please let me live. Please let them live. Please help. When Uvalde happened, Buffalo, Ukraine, 9-11, people prayed. It's said of war. There, there are no atheists in foxholes. But it's not only war, it's car accidents and surgery, divorce, death, shootings, cancer, losing a job, homes burning down, natural disasters, drownings, depression, suicide. Prayer is simply a human reaction to pain. And this brings us to the Jonah story today. So, Let's read Jonah's story. We're picking up in chapter 1, verse 15. And if you haven't been tracking with us, I'd recommend going back sometime so that you can start from the beginning of the Jonah series. Here it is. So, the sailors picked Jonah up and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, And distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I called for help. You listened to me and heard my voice. You hurled me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood engulfed me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I thought I was driven away, banished out of your sight. Would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep engulfed me. Seaweeds were wrapped around my head. I sank to the roots of the mountains. I went down. The bars of the earth closed up on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. 
but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. I will say, deliverance, salvation, belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Why do the prayers that Jonah prays from the belly of the huge fish sound so different from the prayers of the man trapped in the forest with a broken leg or the woman about to lose her husband or the father whose son's life hangs by a thread? Jonah sounds so poetic, so eloquent, so certain, so pious, almost upbeat, while they sound so desperate, so wordless, so uncertain. If you look closely, you'll notice that Jonah chapter 2 actually contains two different prayers that are prayed from two different locations, and these two different prayers are very different prayers. The first prayer comes out of the depths of human pain and suffering. And actually, we're only told about this first prayer after the fact. The first prayer is nothing more than a gurgling, bubbling sound, a scream of the heart. And it's only one word. And that word is help. This is Jonah's first word to God in the entire story. Remember, until this point in the story, Jonah has refused to pray. But verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Out of the belly of Sheol, I called for help. Jonah doesn't paint a picture of this huge fish immediately swallowing him up at the surface of the waves. He paints a picture of drowning. Your waves and billows swept over me. The waters closed over me. The deep engulfed me. I sank to the roots of the mountains, the very bottom of the ocean. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I went down. The bars of the earth closed upon me forever. Out of the belly of Sheol, I called for help. Sheol, that word, it was believed to be the abode of the dead, the place of the dead, the underworld, the netherworld. It was believed to be under the earth, below the ocean floor. People said that it had bars, that like a prison, that prevented anyone who went there from escaping. It was a place lacking memory and knowledge and possessions. Anyone who went there became a shade, a shadow of their former self. Anyone in Sheol was completely beyond rescuing. So, there at the bottom of the ocean... Jonah was more dead than alive. He was the person whose pain is so deep that they can hardly whisper, I'm dead. This is hell. This is a living nightmare. He thought he'd never again experience the divine presence. And the one word that his heart screamed from underneath the bars of the earth, from the belly of Sheol, was help. Bubbles, gurgles. Prayer is a human reaction to pain. And God listened. God brought a huge fish to deliver Jonah. 
the fish dove down into the belly of Sheol and swallowed Jonah up. Jonah was in that saving fish for three days and three nights. It's interesting, some versions of ancient mythology believe that it took three days and nights to travel from the underworld back to the earth. Help. Please help. And God answers out of the depths of Sheol. The surgeon walks into the hospital chapel where the father is begging God to save his son's life. And the surgeon says, we were able to stop the bleeding. He has a long road ahead of him, but we think he's going to make it. We think he's going to pull through. And the father gasps out, oh, thank you, thank you. Not just to the surgeon, but to God. The woman goes home from the church service after begging God to save her marriage. And her husband tells her that the other woman just dumped him. She says it isn't the same having their relationship out in the open. What she liked about their affair was the secrecy and the feeling of doing something wrong. And now that it's out in the open, it's no fun. She says she's done. And the woman breathes a sigh of relief. To God, thank you. The young man with the broken leg wakes up in darkness. He can hear people calling his name. He can see flashlights. He calls out. Search and rescue workers loom out of the darkness. A friend had recognized his truck, parked up the logging road, and just happened to send a text to him and his girlfriend asking if the fish were biting. It's the only reason they even knew where to look. Thank you, God. This brings us to the second prayer, prayed from the second location. What kind of prayers do we pray? Not from the belly of Sheol, but from the belly of a huge fish. What do we pray when God rescues us from Sheol and we come just a notch away from death? This artwork captures the death that, that Jonah was saved from. It's, uh, he, he looks like he's more dead than alive, but he is alive there in the belly of the fish. The huge fish was salvation, deliverance. Jonah was not out of the woods, but he was one notch removed from death. He was in the belly of a huge fish, but at least he was no longer trapped forever below the bars of the earth, trapped in Sheol. Sure, the seawater and stomach acid might be sloshing and burning and crushing him, but somewhere in there, he could find a patch of air and catch a breath. It's disturbing to notice what happened next. I'm not excited to point this out. It's disturbing because this story happens all the time. And because you and I have likely done the same thing that Jonah did at one point or another. Renowned psychologist Scott Peck points out that one of the greatest problems of human existence is our struggle to distinguish what we are and are not responsible for in this life. In some areas of our life, 
we become guilt-ridden. We assume responsibility for things that really aren't our responsibility. And we make ourselves miserable and we say, it's all my fault. But in other areas of life, we fail to take responsibility for what is actually our responsibility. We automatically assume that someone else is at fault. And so we blame others and blame God and refuse to accept that we might be the source of our problems. No, we say, it's others. The world needs to change. Someone else needs to change. And we cast away responsibility and make everyone else miserable. We want them to change, but nothing actually changes, and the problem persists. We find Jonah, one notch away from death. He's down in the belly of the fish with his life just freshly saved, but he's still facing massive challenges like How are you supposed to survive in the belly of a fish for any length of time? And in the first moments of relief, barely catching his breath, all of the stress and strain comes out in a prayer, blaming God. Jonah claims, you hurled me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Well, wait a minute, Jonah. God didn't hurl you. The sailors hurled you into the sea because you told them to throw you in. Remember that? And Jonah accuses God of driving him away and banishing him from his sight. Well, wait a minute, Jonah. I'm pretty sure God didn't drive you away at all. You were fleeing from God, remember? That's what you told the sailors, at least. And the disturbing thing is that Jonah isn't the only one who does this. We cry out to God to save our life, and God does. But that doesn't mean we aren't still facing massive challenges. We're still in the belly of the whale, and we slip into blaming God, acting like we act like God is the author of evil, the source of our suffering. So it's the father who he makes it upstairs with his son after surgery. And that's when he finds out that his son might not ever walk again. And now he's railing against God. You caused this car accident. You did this to my son. It's the wife who begins to feel the pain of the affair and says, God, you let my husband meet that awful woman. How could you? Or the man with the broken leg having the surgeon telling him he'll probably be unable to work at his job for months. He might lose his job. And suddenly the young man is saying, God, how could you do this? How could you take my job away from me? This is your fault. I was just trying to go fishing. At the very same time that we blame God, it's funny, we know that we still need God to get us all the way out of this mess. And so we switch back into flattering God, saying things that we don't really mean, we only kind of mean them. Jonah's ultimate flattery of God is saying, you brought my life up from the pit to salvation. Deliverance belongs to God. Well, wait a minute, Jonah. I'm not sure that you actually want to praise God for all the ways that God brings deliverance and salvation. 
Like, yeah, you can praise God for your deliverance and your salvation, but it doesn't seem like you want to praise God for the deliverance and salvation that God wants to bring to Nineveh. Uh, isn't, isn't that the issue? Hasn't that been the issue from the beginning? And if you're reading ahead in the book of Jonah, you know that even after Jonah makes it out of the belly of the fish, Jonah still wants God to smite Nineveh. Jonah's not excited about the salvation that God is bringing to Nineveh. And so, Jonah, it's like you only kind of mean what you're saying so that you can make it out of this scenario alive. You want God's salvation on your terms. It's the father who might not ever walk again, and he overhears a nurse and a police officer talking. The driver who hit them is just a few doors down in the ICU unit, and the father hears that he was texting while driving, and now he might be paralyzed. And at the same time that the father can breathe a sigh of relief and tell God thank you for saving his son's life, he hopes that that other man who was driving is paralyzed. Paralyzed, He says it would serve him right for texting while driving. Or it's the woman whose husband had the affair. She's thanking God that the other woman dumped her husband, but the more she learns about that other woman, the more she'd like to see that woman's life completely implode, see her lose all her friends and her job and her home and everything. She wants God to save her life and ruin someone else's. Or it's the young man in the hospital bragging to the chaplain that he prayed to God that God would send him someone and find him. And later he flicks on the TV in his room and he sees reports of Russian forces that have been bombed by Ukrainian forces, leaving Russian soldiers with severed limbs, never to walk again, splintered bones just like his own. And he mutters, serves him right. You see, we all tend to want God's saving work to be on our own terms. It's us, not them. Jonah's prayer, from the belly of Sheol, it was authentic. It was screamed from the heart, help! But Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish is almost all copied from the Psalms. It's quotations. The reason that Jonah's prayer sounds so poetic is because it's straight poetry from the Psalms. You can see all of those citations if you're if you're watching the video version of this on our webpage. Jonah the prophet obviously knew the Psalms well. The Psalms were the prayer book of the people of Israel. So Jonah sounded really spiritual, quoting all that scripture, making his prayers so eloquent. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for praying the Psalms. But if Jonah was going to select prayers to pray from the Psalms, why in the world didn't he choose to pray Psalms of regret and contrition and repentance? Psalms like Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. Like, why didn't he say, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned, God, and done what's evil in your sight. And you're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge. 
I acknowledge my sin to you. I do not cover up my iniquity. I say, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you will forgive the guilt of my sin. Why wasn't that Jonah's prayer? Why did Jonah choose to structure his entire prayer as a psalm of thanksgiving? Like, why doesn't he take responsibility for his actions? Why are there no contrition words? Why is there no deep reflection on his motives? Why can't Jonah say, I'm sorry, God? And here's the most disturbing part of Jonah's prayer. He sets himself up as the model of piety and holiness while while he tears others down. It's the very end of his prayer. In the eight verses of Jonah's prayer, he uses some form of the word I, me, my, 26 times. There's a whole lot of me going on, a whole lot of ego. Not a single time in his prayer is he actually taking responsibility for his actions. Not once. He says, I cried out to the Lord. Well, he doesn't mention all the sailors and the captain were begging him to pray, begging him to cry out to the Lord, and he refused to pray. He doesn't mention that. Instead of facing his own responsibility in everything that happened, he tries to go after others. He tears them down for their unfaithfulness. He says, those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Remember the story of the guy who broke his leg in the forest and all the promises he's making to God. Jonah's saying, well, all those promises I made while I was deep down dying. I will do them. Can you see how Jonah's trying to find someone who's worse than himself? Trying to find someone he can contrast himself with? Trying to cover up his own unfaithfulness, his own disloyalty? He's not taking responsibility for his own actions. But Jonah had been practicing what he was actually accusing others of. His actions and his words don't match up because... He's accusing other people of worshiping false gods, gods of their own making, idols. However, all throughout the story, he's been remaking God into an image of his own making. He's been doing the same thing. He wants God to be someone other than who God actually is. And so underneath it all, what's really going on is Jonah wants others to be at fault. He wants them to be the source of the problems. It's they need to change. Does any part of Jonah's prayer feel nauseating to you? Does it does it feel nauseating to recognize times when you've made similar moves? I, I don't think, as I say that, that you should be thinking about how someone else does this. We all do this. And where is God? Where is God in all of this? God listens. God hears our most desperate, heartfelt cries for help, those screams out of our heart. Jesus tells this story in Luke 18, where there's this tax collector, and in desperation, 
he prays. He says, oh God, let the atonement, the mercy be for me. He's, he's screaming from the heart, just like Jonah's first prayer. And Jesus says he was made right before God. Meanwhile, Jesus contrasts that man with a Pharisee. The Pharisee prays a prayer more like Jonah's second prayer. He stands apart from everyone. He says, God, thank you. I'm not like all those other people, the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers. And that sounds a lot like Jonah. You know, there are those who worship idols, but I, that's not me. I'm not like that. So what does God do not just with our prayers that are screamed out of the heart, but with our most nauseating prayers? Does God still listen to those kinds of prayers? One of God's greatest kindnesses in the entire Jonah story is that God gives us do-overs. God doesn't just leave Jonah inside of the fish's belly after Jonah has blamed God and then flattered God and said things he didn't mean and then painted himself as a model citizen and then attacked others for doing the same thing that he's actually been doing all along and throughout it all failing to take responsibility for his actions. God could just leave Jonah in that belly of the whale, the fish. Yet God is so kind to give Jonah a do-over. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God said, go to the great city of Nineveh. It's still great. It's still important to him. And proclaim the message that I give you. We all need do-overs in life. I remember a grandpa who told me the story of playing with his grandkids in the pool. He said he would put his arms out and he would ask the grandkids to jump into his arms, to jump from the edge of the pool into the water so that their grandpa could catch them. But the grandpa said, not all the grandkids want to jump. And I remember him telling me, he said, if my grandchild refuses, like if they're deathly afraid and they run away, if they throw a huge tantrum, if they call me names, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop taking them to the pool. It doesn't mean that I won't ask them next time to jump into my arms. He says nothing they could do will keep me from gently just inviting them, asking them next time. Put out my arms and say, come on, you want to jump? And that grandpa says to me, I think God is like this. God brings us to a moment we know that there's someone or something that we need to face, something that we need to do, something that we need to change. There's, there's something that we know God is speaking. And sometimes we are the ones who run away. We get filled with anxiety. We blame God. We blame others. We say things we don't mean, or worse yet, we say horrible things that we do mean. We fail to take responsibility for our actions. And God doesn't say, well, I'm never going to invite you to do anything with me ever again. Fine, I'm leaving you here. You can stay in the belly of the whale. No. After all of our anxiety, after all of our running and blaming God, 
even before we've fixed our nauseating prayers sometimes. God brings us back to the beginning, and God happily gives us a do-over. God puts out his arms to us and says the very same thing. How about this time? Jump. I invite you to reflect on this with three different questions that we discussed on Sunday. So if you've got someone you can chat with, great. Otherwise, just ponder these questions in your own mind, in your own heart. Here they are. First of all, prayers that come out of the belly of Sheol are often deeply sincere. What are some of the reasons that prayers that come out of the belly of the whale sometimes change in flavor? Reflect on that. The next discussion question or reflection question, Scott Peck says one of the greatest problems of human existence is our struggle to distinguish what we are and are not responsible for in this life. In what way does the gift of do-overs bring clarity to this struggle? And the final reflection question. What do you think God is hoping for when God offers us do-overs? Does this differ in any way from what you tend to assume the purpose is within a do-over? Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, 
hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.